Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. It's great to be with you again this morning. Um, Can you remember a time when you were temporarily given responsibility for something really important? So maybe you were asked to look after a younger brother or sister while your parents were out. Uh, Maybe you've babysat for the child of some close friends. Maybe you borrowed someone's car. Maybe you've uh, looked after someone's house while they were on holiday. Maybe even looked after their pet. How did you feel while that person was away? Maybe you enjoyed the responsibility and were fairly relaxed. Or maybe you were nervous every single minute, just panicking that something terrible might happen. Well, today, as Kat mentioned, we're coming to the end of our series of talks, going through the book of Luke, where we've been carefully considering some of the things that Jesus said. And for the last one, we're in chapter 19, where Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman who leaves for a while and entrusts several of his servants with some responsibility while he's gone. Um, So we're going to read about it now, Luke chapter 19 verses 11 to 27. It will come up on the screens, but you, can, uh, you might want to follow along with your Bibles and your Bible apps as well. Luke chapter 19 from verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. This mon- Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mind has earned five more. His master said, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's always good when looking at passages in the Bible to check the context that they sit in. Um, And this one comes right after the story of Zacchaeus. And that's a tale of a corrupt, wealthy person who repents and promises to repay several times over um, the people that he's cheated money from. So those following Jesus might have thought that if uh, someone like Zacchaeus, who was a hated tax collector, was finding salvation, that maybe salvation was about to come to the whole nation The festival of Passover was coming up. The timing seemed perfect. And verse 11 of that passage says that Jesus taught the parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and everything would be made right. The oppressive Roman regime would be overturned. The hypocritical Jewish teachers would be proven wrong. Anyone who decided to follow Jesus would be vindicated as he would become king of the Jews. But Luke writes with hindsight, probably several decades after the death of Jesus, he knows that the victory of the cross was not quite what people were expecting. And he also knows that Jesus' return as the triumphant king was not rapid. Now, the parable that Jesus tells was in li- likely intended to remind the listeners at the time of the account of Archelaus, son of Herod the Great, who died in 4 BC. So um, several decades before this story, but still fairly fresh in their minds. Um, so Archelaus uh, goes to Rome after his father's death to be confirmed as king and to argue his case against his half-brother Antipas, who also sought to be king. But there were some Judeans who went to Rome to oppose Archelaus' right to leadership. So you can see some of this is starting to sound familiar. Jesus uses this idea in his parable because it would have been familiar to his listeners at the time. And so I was trying to think, what might an equivalent metaphor for us be now? In the UK, uh, we're not in an empire. We don't have to send these local kings somewhere centrally to get confirmed. Um, And I guess we're more used to, in this country, um, being familiar with politicians running the country. Um, And I don't know how familiar you are with UK politics at the moment, but we're in a really interesting situation where at some point in the next year, we know there's going to be a general election. We don't exactly know when. We're not in control of that. But at some point in the next year, that election is going to happen. And we know that the polling, where we're taking samples of um, what small groups of people think they might vote if they were voting today, that polling indicates that Labour, who are the opposition at the moment, would win a majority. But that's not guaranteed. And depending on who actually wins the next election will have an impact on where large chunks of money in the UK, um, how certain things are taxed, how things are regulated. So someone conducting business at the moment might be in a similar situation to the servants in this parable. Do they choose to invest their money in something that would be profitable under a conservative government or a Labour government? For example, maybe businesses who focus on green energy might be hedging their bets that next year there's going to be a government that's more inclined to supporting those type of endeavours. Others might be too nervous and uncertain. They just don't know how this election is going to play out. So they're playing it safe and staying away from any of those industries that might be affected in that way. And that's like the servant who played it safe and hid the money away. So Jesus is telling us this story to make us think about how we act while we're waiting for an uncertain amount of time to find out about a potential leadership change. What will we do with the resources we've been given? So a minor, which is what's given to each of these servants, would have been about three months' wages, so equivalent to several thousand pounds for us today, so not an insignificant amount of money, although it seems fairly trivial to the master. What can we learn from how Jesus describes the responses of the three servants to the money that was given to them to invest? Well, I think we can summarise it in the four F statements that will come up on the screen. So firstly... Faithful to God. We're called to be faithful to God. Secondly, first from God. Everything we have is first from God. Third, favor through God. We gain favor through God. And fourth, fruitfulness for God. So any fruitfulness we have is ultimately for God and his glory. And I think these truths are highlighted all throughout the parable in different ways, but I'm going to come back to each of them specifically a little later. 
Um, I looked at several commentaries on this passage to help me try and understand it a bit better, but one I found particularly helpful uh, was a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth E. Bailey, and he offers a couple of alternative ways for translating verse 13. So while in the NIV it's phrased, put this work to work, put this money to work until I come back, put this money to work until I come back, Bailey suggests it might actually be better translated as put this money to work because I am coming back. So that first option suggests a master wants them to work really hard every moment until he returns to get the greatest expected profit. But when he returns, he commends his servants for being faithful, not successful. If it's instead interpreted as because, because I am coming back, then the command focuses on faith in the successful return of the master. Trading in his name publicly would have demonstrated their trust in their master's right to authority. If they were uncertain about aligning themselves with him, then they'd be unwilling to trade in his name. When the master returns, he has been appointed king. He's been determined as worthy of that title. And when he returns, he checks who's been loyal to him, just as Jesus will do when he returns. The first two servants don't sing their own praises of the additional money they've wisely managed to earn off their original investment, but they say their master's money has earned more. They chose to trust their boss by trading his name, and it's paid off. The master then doesn't praise their success, he praises their faithfulness, their trustworthiness. And they're not rewarded financially yet, but instead they're rewarded with more responsibility. The master has been appointed king, and he now needs representatives to help him lead his territory. He needs people he can trust, and these servants have shown that they'll remain loyal to him, even while others plotted against him. What about the third servant? We find out that he has hidden away the money that he was given by his master. He was ashamed of being associated with him. If he'd invested the money, people may have asked where he'd got it from, Better to hide it and just return it to him when he got back. And it may seem like this servant responds by insulting his master, saying he tricks and cheats people. But actually, this seems unlikely based on that power dynamic. This guy was his boss, and he's just come back as king with even more authority. So the reality is that although we might read that as a bit of an insult, that culturally it could have been interpreted as a compliment. He was saying, oh, working hard's a fool's game. You're doing well, not having to do all of that yourself. But maybe he has actually misunderstood his master. Maybe his master does believe in following the rules and working hard. The suggestion that this servant could have at least taken it to the bank and got interest from the money is, is intriguing. Um, technically, it would have been fairly low effort and low risk for the servant to do this. He wouldn't have to invest it publicly. He could kind of sneak along to the bank and not tell them where he got it from. But Jewish law actually condemns the earning of interest. So it was a bit like offering someone a loan and then demanding it to be repaid later at, um, with interest. And that was something that was forbidden because it was trying to protect the poor and the vulnerable from being exploited. But if the servant really thought that his master was so uncaring of others' well-being, he could have invested the money in that way and at least got some profit from it. But instead, it seems, he was actually just reluctant about conducting business in his master's name. 
If he had opened up a pub called the King's Paul's Head or set up a shop called King Paul's Fish and Chip Shops, if he had paid for advertising and handed out flyers with those names on and then discovered that his master Paul was never actually appointed king, he would have lost all credibility. Actually, it seems this servant didn't believe that his master would return as king and the master condemns him for his lack of faithfulness rather than his lack of profitability. The master orders that this servant's minor be taken away from him. And it's interesting to contrast that it doesn't particularly say up to now that the other two servants got to keep their original investments. They both say that their master's money had earned him even more. But now the third servant has even what had originally been gifted to him stripped away from him. His money is then given to the one who earned 10 minus. Now, it does suggest that maybe these servants did get to keep their investments, or maybe their faithfulness shows that they could be trusted to take that larger investment and go and make even more profit for their master. We may need to be careful about reading this part of the passage through modern capitalist lenses, though. I don't believe that Jesus is suggesting that those who are prosperous in business should be given even more financial benefits. And I think, broadly speaking, most people are okay with people who earn more being taxed an even greater portion of their income. But what you will see frequently in this church, and likely in many churches, is that those who are faithful in smaller responsibilities are given even greater responsibility. So if you turn up every single week to help out with serving the teas and coffees, if you give a kind and welcoming smile to newcomers and regulars alike, if you pick up the dirty mugs and make sure everything is tidy and clean before you leave, then you may well find yourself leading a hospitality team after a while. If you attend one of our wonderful small groups week in and week out, even when you're tired and grumpy from a rough few days, if you're the one making drinks for everyone while your host struggles to put the kids to bed, if you offer to help lead the discussion of worship time when you see that your small group leaders have been doing it every week for the last few months, well, then you may well soon find yourself invited to be trained up as a new small group leader. Those who are trusted with a, a small amount will be given more. So back to our four F statements. The first was faithful to God. The first two servants were faithful to their master even before he had returned with the full authority of being appointed king. They faced opposition from uh, his other subjects who thought he shouldn't be king. And the third servant likely succumbed to that opposition and refused to align himself with his master in his absence. What are we, the followers of Jesus, to do while we await the return of our king? Some might call us foolish for believing our king will return. Some might say that we should hedge our bets on other powers and authorities that appear more assured. What might that temptation look like for us? Maybe it's to just leave a conversation short when someone asks if we're religious. Maybe it's to say that we'll pray for someone, but not specifically that we'll pray in the name of Jesus. These are all things I'm guilty of. Are we afraid to tie ourselves to Jesus because of what other people will think of us? At first glance, we might look at this parable and think that we need to work harder with what God has given us. And most of us, by um, global standards, are fairly financially well off. So we might feel guilty that we're not doing enough to care for those less well off than us. 
We might also feel that we're not doing enough with our time or gifts, that we need to be discipling our family and friends more, that we need to be telling our neighbours and colleagues who don't know Jesus how wonderful and transforming he is. And those are good things. But let's be clear, Jesus is not saying that we can earn his love by working harder or doing more. The challenge is whether we are faithful to him or not. Do we align ourselves with Jesus through the challenges and the uncertainties, trusting that he is our king? Or do we put our trust elsewhere? When the master returns, he doesn't actually say, well done for being so profitable. You are clearly a very good business person. Instead, he says, well done because you have been trustworthy. God rewards our faithfulness, not our productivity. The second F phrase, first from God. The first two servants didn't boast in their ability to make more money. Instead, they knew that the only reason they were able to make any profit at all was because of what they had originally been given from their master. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Anything impressive or significant that we're able to achieve is only possible because of what God has given us first. It keeps us humble to regularly remind ourselves of that. One way might be looking at our income each month and thanking God for what's come from the gifts he's given to us. First, from God. Third one is favour through God. The first two servants also seem to suggest that it was their association with their master who had now been given the authority as king that allowed them to be so effective in business. They had trusted to align themselves with him and it had paid off. The third servant, on the other hand, had been too afraid to associate himself with his master's name. It might seem risky sometimes in work or business to operate in a godly way, to not lie or cheat, to pay people fairly and treat your employees well. I believe that God pays close attention to how we conduct ourselves in our work and his favour will be upon us when we're faithful to what he expects of us. It's important to realise that this favour may not always be in the format that we're expecting. I think God will always bless us for being faithful, but it might not always be financially or with success in business. So third point is favour through God. Fourth is fruitfulness for God. Ultimately, we experience the favour of God in our work. If we experience the favour of God in our work, in our education, in church, any of that fruitfulness from that is ultimately for his glory. Sometimes the fruit that we want to see is not the fruit that God is producing. (laughs) Normally, God is more concerned with developing our character, our heart, which is an eternal investment rather than our prosperity and our money, which is temporary anyway. When we realise that we each have gifts and strengths, we can choose to use them only for our own benefit, or we can choose to invest them in God's glory and in blessing others. Um, When I lived in Manchester a number of years ago, and was involved in a church plant there, I was trying to figure out how to meet new people in the city. 
Uh, and I decided to start going along to acquire. Actually, it came up in a notification on my phone yesterday that it was 10 years yesterday since I first went. It's good timing. Um, I don't know what you're thinking with choir, but this was a cool choir. I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably insulting anyone that goes to a choir that I don't think is cool. But this, this, yeah, this, this was a cool one. We sang soul music. Um, we met in a room upstairs above a bar in the city centre on a Monday night. I know you're thinking pretty cool, right? <laughs> but so I went along to this pretty much every Monday night. Um, and after a year or so, the guy that was running it decided he needed to step back for personal reasons. And I decided to take up the mantle. So I had, you know, a basic knowledge of music, but I was pretty good at listening to a song and coming up with a few different vocal harmonies. Um, I had a guitar, I had a few gadgets to help control playing back the backing music over the venue's PA system. Um, every week I recorded the performances and I edited them with some software on my computer and then I shared them with everyone to listen back. These were the gifts I had been given and I decided to use them to gather together every week a motley crew of people from around the city of Manchester to have fun and sing together. And it ended up being the single most fruitful source of friendships the entire time I lived in Manchester. And some of my favourite conversations were hearing people say that Mondays were their favourite days because it's choir night. You will not often hear people say Mondays are their favourite day, but I got to do it sometimes, which is such a blessing. I'm so grateful that I was able to take just some of those few simple things that I could do to encourage meaningful friendships and bring joy to people's lives. What are the gifts, big or small, that God has given us and how are we going to use them for his glory? Romans 12 verses 4 to 8 says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Don't get caught up trying to use the gifts that God's given to someone else. Instead, try to think what the specific gifts that God has given you and how can you use them to serve King Jesus until he returns? So just to summarize, while we have that weight for that change in power, how do we conduct ourselves? How do we wait until Jesus returns? What does it look like for someone to faithfully align themselves to the work of God in doubting opposition? Maybe when uh, what we believe as Christians seems silly or irrational, maybe in certain scientific or academic circles, or if people um, find out you give 10% of your salary to the church and think that's ridiculous, or if your friends find out that you've decided you won't have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get married, what will you do when you're confronted with these other opinions? How will you align yourselves to God in the face of opposition? And finally, how can we all use the gifts that God has given us for his glory until he returns? 
We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.